and welcome to episode 861 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by our invaluable Patreon supporters and the Play Index at BaseballReference.com. I'm Ben Lindbergh of 538, joined by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. Hello. Howdy. Anything you want to talk about before we start answering emails? No, thank you. All right, so let's start with, well, let's start with one question that was sent in by someone whose email address was suspiciously similar to yours. His name is Sam, and he says, if your favorite team offered to let you play a game, would you? You have to play a position other than first base, and you have to play the entire game. It's neither an extraordinarily important or meaningless game, it's today's game. In fact, so would you. Wow, great. That's a great question. Yeah. What? Wow. I don't know. I don't know how to answer that. Yeah. Right. I'm just springing it on you. You've never yeah. seen it before. So, I think it we your first thought is like that would be a dream, right? Like we've been we've answered the question, for instance, uh something along the lines of if uh you know, if they auctioned off a spot in the lineup and some like random, you know, business dude got to play for a game or whatever, how 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 much he would hurt his team I think Mm -hmm. and I think we've answered the question of how much we would cost a team over the course of a year uh and so on um and it's I think the premise of the the auction off one is that everybody would love to play a major league baseball game like that's the dream Uh and yet I was thinking about that uh dreaming about it thinking about it as a dream and uh it suddenly occurred to me that uh, nothing could be less enjoyable. No, it would make me miserable. <laughs> it would be so <laughs> gift. You yeah. would be. You would just be made fun of. Everybody, <laughs> like I don't even. I think, in fact, I think this came up. Actually, it did. This this came up in my head because I was thinking about playing softball, and I forget exactly what. But I this little like the little anxiety that I always feel when I'm playing softball, rec league softball on Sunday afternoons with no audience and nobody cares. Uh-huh. Uh, I still feel anxiety that I'm going to miss a ball, that I'm sure. going to do something embarrassing. And the idea of doing that in front of, you can't even necessarily say millions of people because you have the potential to create a series of bloopers so bad that it would be viewed <laughs> by billions of people. Yes, of course. I mean, non-baseball fans would be watching this. This would not be restricted to to hardcore fans. And Almost you, anyone would be interested in, in seeing this. Right. And you would be despised by millions who root for that team. And you would be despised by your team. They would hate you. They would hate everything about you being there. Uh-huh. Uh, the other players. Every time you botched one, they would hate it. They would. You'd go into the dugout and they would hate you. Yeah, I think I would do it. I would do it for the story, I <laughs> yes. think. Um, just, I would regret, I would kick myself if I didn't do it. I think, I, I mean, just as a writer, for one thing, I would want to do it because I, I like stories where writers get to do things that normal people don't usually get to do and they write about them. I I try to do those stories sometimes. Those, I think those turn into the best books. Yeah, right. Whether it's taking over the baseball operations department of an independent league baseball team or, you know, going to scout school or playing the best Super Smash Brothers 64 player in the world or whatever. I really enjoy doing those sorts of stories. And so it'd be fun to write about even the experience of being mortified and despised. And plus, you'd get a baseball reference page. You could play index yourself. And that is worth a lot of embarrassment, I think, and dread and anxiety. 
and you know maybe you'd learn a little bit about i mean the the hypothetical that we always get asked about how bad a normal person would be in a major league game we could demonstrate exactly how bad that would be you could get a first-hand look at things that you could never get a good look at otherwise and good understanding of otherwise so it would be hard to pass off uh, pass up i would be miserable i would dread it i wouldn't sleep and i would be terrible but i'd have to do it i think i agree and i think that there's a lesson there that it is probably a, a an important thing in life a sign of maturity a sign of a strong life lived that you do the thing you need to do even when anxiety is telling you not to do it and uh-huh. I agree it would be embarrassing I would be terrified the only good thing about this hypothetical the only good thing about this hypothetical is that the game is today and so I can't lose sleep for weeks leading up to it I think that um, a big part of of any achievement is simply getting over the fear that that you know, it's it's like, you know, the this the the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. And the idea behind that is that fear is well, I mean, I, we all know what that means. That fear is sort of self-sustaining. Fear is a cycle. Fear is a spiral. Fear is uh, before the bad thing has happened, you have already given f- the bad thing power over you. And it's the uh, mind killer. Right. And so overcoming fear is the flip side of that. And even if the thing you are doing is not a good, is not actually productive or any sort of moral good, overcoming the fear is itself uh, a moral good. It, It is you reclaiming power over, you know, over the world, over evil, over uh, your own, uh, you know, your own darkest uh, parts of your brain. And so I think that you'd have to, you'd have to do it. The, the main reason not to do it, uh, the main good reason is not that you fear the embarrassment, as that you are actually doing something disrespectful to a thing you like. That it is, uh-huh. ultimately, it is. you have to decide whether it's a selfish act or not. And even though your team hates you and the team's fans will hate you, I'm not sure that their hatred is justified. I don't know that I don't know that you can say necessarily that you are actually bad for the sport or not, but I think it you probably are. You're probably bad. It's it kind of create it turns the game into a farce and I don't know that uh, that is something that the game could ever recover from. Uh, <laughs> but I I think I'd get over that. What position would you play? So I can't play first base. Correct. I'd probably play a corner outfield spot. Probably less less chance of having balls hit to me and less chance of getting hit in the face by one. Yeah, the I would say that um, say there's 100 baseballs hit to right field on average. 20 of those are hits no matter who the outfielder is. And so you're you're clear on those. Yeah. And then I would say of the 80% that are caught, probably three-fourths of those are cans of corn. And I do believe I can catch cans of corn without embarrassing myself. Uh-huh. And the others, it would mostly be a matter of not having the range. And yeah, so and wouldn't you wouldn't look, look, it wouldn't as, look bad. as bad right. <laughs> missing those balls. Like if you if you were running full out and you just couldn't get to them, it would be harder to tell that you couldn't get to them because you were just incredibly slow. It wouldn't be like if you have a ground ball yeah. hit to you and you actually have to field it. You can't just you know not get there because no. you're slow. The problem is that you would have to run on camera, and you look worse running than you think you do. <laughs> you're, you're, I don't think we appreciate not just how slow we are, 
but how bad we are at running, I think that uh-huh. we would actually look really silly running uh, in a place where normally skilled runners run. And I also would be afraid that my arm would, would be seen. I don't want people <laughs> to see me throw. Yeah. Um, and that brings up another interesting thing, which is that embarrassment is such an odd thing, right? Because say, okay, so say that you yeah, we've never said fart on this podcast. <laughs> I feel so undignified saying the word. <laughs> oh, God, but I don't. I think I need to for the example. It's okay with me. Say you're in church, okay, uh-huh. and somebody farts, right? And everybody thinks it's you, uh-huh. right? That's really embarrassing, and you would not want that feeling. No. Say that you were in church and you farted, but mm. nobody knew. That's not embarrassing. No, and you wouldn't mind that feeling. And it is very weird that we prefer to do the thing we consider shameful. And I mean, this is a, it's a simplified example. Most of us don't consider flatulence to actually be shameful. But let, I, I don't want to get into the, the hypotheticals that would truly represent shame because then I'd have to say even more uncomfortable words. But we would rather do the thing that is shameful but not be known, not have it be known than to not do the thing that is shameful, but have it be thought, which is such a weird sense of priorities in our lives. We would, if you replace shameful with evil, we would probably rather be evil and have it go undetected than like, for instance, I think that most of us, I don't know if this is true, but I think, I'm not sure. Do you think that the average person would rather commit murder, but get away with it or be convicted of a murder that that didn't happen, that they didn't do. Mm, almost certainly get away with it. Yeah, which is nuts. <laughs> yeah. So that's cr- and so so the average person might actually murder someone if oh, they could get away with it. So that this is now this is a very so that's a very dark assessment of humanity and of ourselves <laughs> if we think that we fall into that humanity. And so the fact that we're talking about being embarrassed uh, because of how we run or throw on camera. We should, by all rights, already feel that embarrassment because we know that's what we would look like. And yet we don't. We don't wake up every day feeling embarrassed of how we would look playing a baseball game, (laughs) even Uh though we know that we would be horrible at it. We probably should. We probably should all walk around with the secret shame of knowing how many gifts there would be if (laughs) our team let us play. Uh (laughs) Yeah, probably. Because what do we prioritize in this world? We really prioritize... It's crazy. We prioritize what other people think of us, true or not true, over how well we hew to our own consciences. Yeah. That's in many, jacked. In many man. respects. This is <laughs> jacked. What a horrible way that we've decided to organize our self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. Well, it depends on whether there are consequences to to being known to have done something. If the only consequences is guilt, I guess you're saying that the the guilt or the Secret remorse should be the, the greatest consequence of all. Okay, but now what if there was a – would you rather be thought a war hero incorrectly? Like you know that you're actually uh, 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 Dick Dick Whitlock. What's his name? Dick Whitlock? Don Draper, yeah. Yeah. Would you rather be incorrectly thought a war hero or to actually be a war hero but nobody knows it? That one it seems like you would rather – be a war hero, but nobody knows it. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that the same, that it, that the inverse is true. I do feel like maybe we draw joy 
from intrinsic assessments of ourselves, but draw shame primarily from external assessments of ourselves. Yeah. Dick Whitman, by the way. Dick Whitman, thank you. I wonder, though, whether part of the reason why we wouldn't want to be the falsely perceived war hero is because there is a chance fear, of being found the out. Fear, yes, the fear. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. There's no upside. You've, right. The minute it happens, you have baked in all the uh, good feelings, and it is all downside until you die. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, so the answer is, you're saying yes. I've changed my mind. I'm saying no. <laughs> I wouldn't do it. Okay. I would. I'm sticking with yes. No, I would. Yeah. I mean, some people would think ill of you for having done it. Yeah. Others would, would think, think ill of you, of you for, for having not. not done it. It does look like a cowardly act. Yeah. It, it doesn't. <laughs> but who cares what it looks like? Is it cowardly well, and is it respectful? We do. Apparently and everyone are, does. Right. Is it cowardly and is it disrespectful? And do you prioritize uh, bravery over respect? And I guess that depends on what type of person you are, if you're an invisible person or a flying person. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. All right. Question from Andrew Patrick, a Patreon supporter. And actually, this is probably not an entirely unrelated question. He says, let's say you are pre-2015 Billy Bean. And on Thanksgiving weekend, you are pondering whether or not to take the Donaldson trade as offered by the Jays. Just at that moment, our old friend baseball god comes to you and informs you that if you make this trade, Franklin Barreto will be a first ballot Hall of Fame shortstop that you can lock down to a very team-friendly deal. The downside is that Josh Donaldson will win multiple MVP awards after his departure, though he will not be as good as Barreto. It is also guaranteed that Barreto will not arrive and mature to superstar status for five years, raid 2020 due to some developmental stalls and rough injuries none of the other pieces you obtain in the deal will give you anything more than zero war each year as you look at your organization it seems almost certain the a's are destined to be bad for at least three or four years until burrito can usher in a new era regardless of if you accept the deal your memory will also be wiped of this encounter with baseball god so you cannot explain your rationale to anyone do you take this trade with that information How much can you trust your organization to keep you around while the team is bad and you have so much egg on your face? How many GMs have the right combination of job security and poor organizational state to want to take this deal? So this this is is sort of the same question. eh, Almost. It's, you know, do you want to make the the right decision if you know that uh, it is the right decision, but no one else will know it for several years? So I think there's three questions here. One is, would you rather, how much better does a player have to be five years from now to prefer him over the player today? Uh Okay. Two is... How much job security do you have? Uh, does the typical GM have? Uh, and how likely are they to reap the benefits of this this deal? Three yep. is does two affect your your assessment of one? Are you a GM who thinks that uh, doing what's right for the organization uh, is enough for you know for you to sleep at night and that you would do it even if you knew it were likely to cost you your job? And it's not irrelevant, the possibility that it would cost you your job. I don't think, it, I don't think it, certainly I think that the, the, so the question, how many GMs have the right combination of job security and poor organizational state to want to take this deal, uh, which is um, basically question number two. It's actually, uh, it's not poor organizational state. I think that, that the poor organizations would probably, the GM would be more likely to be fired uh, uh-huh. if they traded Josh Donaldson for, a uh, prospect who isn't clearly good for five years. It's really like like the Cubs could have made this trade 
and it wouldn't matter because the Cubs are going to win anyway. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it would, it would, they'd have to answer for the trade. They'd have to, they, it would suck. They would be unhappy that they made the trade and people would think, oh, well, we'd be better if we hadn't made the trade. But uh, at least they would survive to live out the, uh, the upside part of the trade. Uh, So how many GMs, I don't know how, I mean, Bean is secure. Mm-hmm. Uh, although that's that tangent question, is it conceivable that Billy Bean could get fired in the next five years? Is there a, a can you describe a state of the organization over the next five years that would lead to Billy Bean getting fired? We don't know, I guess, enough, but yeah, I don't know. A sale of the franchise, I guess. Otherwise, I mean, he has a an ownership stake, right? And well, that doesn't mean he's it doesn't mean his he, he could keep his owner. You can have an ownership stake, but still lose your role as chairman or whatever you are. Yeah. Mm hmm. Maybe it makes it less like, less likely. So, I mean, even if the A's are bad for the next five years, I would I would think he kind of gets to go out on his own terms right now, unless there's a change in owner. Yeah, I, I think that's true too. I'm wondering if there's any scenario where that's not true. I don't know. It's hard to. It would probably require a level of specificity that we're not imaginative enough to get mm-hmm. to. But anyway, so Bean has the security. I don't know how many GMs do you think are secure enough that they could trade, uh, you know, one win today for two wins in five years and feel confident enough that they're going to be there. <sighs> well, maybe anyone who has a president role. If we're if we're not saying uh, strictly general we, manager, well, but do, what, yeah, do what we general think, manager has evolved to mean? You you mean because those people tend to be more established in the game, or do you mean because the presidency itself is a more secure position? Both, yeah. You don't you don't get to become a president unless you have built up a good reputation, and once you're there, you're probably doing enough or perceived as important enough that you can get away with a bad move or a move that seems to be bad in the short term? Well, let's rephrase this question. What percentage of GMs today will be uh, GMs in five years? What Mm. percentage will lose their job? I would say that uh, maybe 50% will still be there. 50% will still be there. And if you knock off an MVP from their team's performances over two or three of the next five years, then some of the 50% that are still there would drop down into fired land. Yes. I don't think it's 50%, though. I think it's less than that. I would guess okay. it's like 35%. But let's bump it up to 45%. So you, let's call it a coin flip that you're going to live to to recoup the benefits of this trade. Uh-huh. So that's a, that's an easy answer. All right. Now, what was the second? What was my first question? How well, many, how many is, future Is wins? there a benefit to the trade? If you're trading yeah, right. okay, multiple so- MVP awards... For uh, a Hall of Famer, well, the premise really... is that it is. The premise yeah. is that Barreto is better than Donaldson, and yes. of course, he'll be cheaper than Donaldson for the mm-hmm. first few years. I mean, look, we have to trust that the point of the question is that Barreto is. If if he's not, then this is a not an interesting question, <laughs> right? So let's okay. assume that he is. So then, how many wins? What kind of discount do you need five years from now? How many? If Donaldson in this scenario produces thirty wins in the five years between now and then. How many wins does Barreto need to produce in the six years of service time for this to be worthwhile to you? Mm. And keep in mind, you are losing the cachet of the MVP awards, which have some marketing value, but you are gaining the cachet of perhaps having a franchise Hall of Famer, Yeah, which is even further down the line, right. and by which point you might not like baseball anymore. <laughs> I'd say you probably need, uh, you probably need like 45, 50 wins. 
Some, sounds about right. That's where I was going. Forty five. That's like a, a very good Hall of Fame peak, I guess. That's like an eight win player. You basically need you know, you basically need him to be trout to want to trade Donaldson for him. Yeah. We're assuming a Donaldson a version of Donaldson where he's this good pretty much for five years. What uh-huh. if it were what if it were twenty win Donaldson? Then uh, yeah, you know, probably like a thirty wins or something. So you would okay. Yeah. So you you're you're you need to basically get a dollar fifty in five years for a dollar spent today. Yeah. Okay, good. Now, question three, how many GMs or I don't know, we, we don't know, we can't look inside their souls. How, I don't know how you want to answer this, but would the typical GM make that trade? Let's say it was, let's say the typical GM knew in this promise that he was going to get two wins for every win, two future wins for every win, but that he was certainly not going to be there, that he mm. would get fired. That this trade would this trade would loom over him and he would be fired. His reputation may or may not be salvaged uh, ten years later when everybody reassesses the Barreto trade to the probably casual fan who only remembers you for being fired. It will probably not. Your the first line of your obituary will probably focus on being terminated uh, and not on making the one of the great foresight trades of all time. Do you think that? the typical GM makes that trade? Well, I think Andrew's stipulation that this person gets the sort of men in black treatment and gets their memory of this interaction with baseball God erased makes it unlikely that anyone would want to do this. It'd be one thing if you could harbor in your heart the knowledge that you are making the right decision and that you were always making the right decision. Be another thing if you forgot. Wait, (laughs) no, but you remember that you made the trade. You, forget, you remember that you made you the trade, that you but were, you forget right, you why. You forget that Biff came back with the with the almanac. You you forget that you got to cheat. Yes. So th- it's the best world is that you get your memory wiped because now you just think that you were a prophet. Mm, maybe. Yeah, but for that five years or ten years or however long for it is, five years you, have you think to, you were an idiot. Yeah. So that's but, no fun. But would you? Plus, take it, it could always just be. I mean, you could say you got lucky. I mean, you you gave up the MVP and you happened to win the lotto ticket with this guy who turns into a Hall of Famer. I, but you're, clearly, I don't know. Ben, clear, no, the point is that this is clearly good for your franchise. You've decided that $1.5 per dollar is a good exchange and I'm giving you $2. So the, yeah. for the franchise, this is a clear win. Your right, owner but you would are, want you to do this. But okay? you're getting fired. But you're, you're getting, getting fired. You're getting and fired you're, and you don't even get to console yourself When you're getting fired by saying that I I know I made the right move. Right. No, you'd feel lousy. The question is would the typical GM choose lousiness out of integrity? No. Or or if not integrity, out of genuinely wanting to see their team win. That they enjoy the sight of their team winning and they know that in the long run they are just as a fan of the team going to be happier to have Barreto than Donaldson. Yeah, but will they still be Happy to see that team win after that team fires them because they made the move? I Good question. I don't think so. I mean, you'd you'd feel happy that your reputation was being restored a little bit, but you probably wouldn't be rooting for the team the way that you were before. I don't think anyone makes this move if, e- you, even if they know they're getting one. fired and huh. they don't get to remember why they made the move. Okay. Yeah. I, all right. All right. Question from, well, this is... Kind of a question, kind of more of a comment from another Patreon supporter, Josh Wilson, who says, just listened to the podcast on unfun facts and wanted to submit my opinion that the least fun facts are those that simply ignore changing times. 
The obvious example is playoff numbers records, such as Derek Jeter's record for most playoff appearances, which whenever mentioned is always followed up by, of course, they play a lot more rounds these days, immediately negating the already highly fortuitous circumstantial accomplishment. Also in this category are any statements about record contracts, since, of course, no headlines about two or $300 million deals ever sound that exciting if converted to, say, $1950 to compare them to past contracts. I think they still would. Even if you inflation-adjusted new contracts, they would still outstrip old contracts by a, a, a good degree, I think. But I, I don't think contracts are fun facts anyway, though. Yeah, right. So, But yeah, any... Any uh, fun fact that depends on not doing an era adjustment that you really should be doing, I think, is not particularly fun. The playoff, I mean, playoff records, it's still, I guess, worthwhile to know who had the most playoff appearances or whatever, even if it's just because they happen to be on really good teams in an era when teams play a lot of playoff games. I mean, it's, it's not useless information. It's not that much fun either. But yeah, any... Anything like that where, you know, the league run environment has changed and you're comparing offensive stats to recent offensive stats or something and it's really a different environment or, you know, anything like that that's just dependent on cheating kind of is not as fun for me. Most, I think that that one of the Cespedes boys made this point, but most fun facts that start with has the most and that's the entire fun fact are not actually uh-huh. fun facts. They're just uh-huh. facts. Yeah. Like a, a leaderboard. Like, <laughs> as they said, right. I remember they, they were making the case that like, you know, realistically the greatest Barry Bonds fun fact is he hit 762 home runs, which is more than any player in major league history. <laughs> but yeah. it's, that's a different, that's a record. Yeah. Uh, and so, but uh, I do, uh, I, I agree with the sentiment here. It is, it is true that postseason facts, or fun facts it's i don't blame the broadcasters i think they're worth saying out loud and i think the broadcasters immediate caveats are recognition that 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 they're giving that we're in a tricky space with playoff records we don't really know how to phrase them it is difficult to phrase a playoff record in a way that you know neither undermines it nor oversells it and we do have now 23 years of this playoff format minus the wild card playing game but basically this playoff format uh, 22. How long until we can quit with this caveat and just say, well, a huge part of baseball history uh, has taken place under this format, and mm-hmm. there have been enough Bernie Williamses and um, and uh, Joe Girardis and so on that uh, we don't have to act like you know Derek Jeter has no competition for this particular record. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, at, at some point when everyone's just grown up with the current system, then you just stop even thinking of the prior system and you stop adding that stipulation so so yeah at some point it will be a, a more valid thing that someone has the most playoff whatevers i wrote down a great fun fact uh, from i think opening day it was uh the red sox and it was dustin pedroia reached base in 43 straight has reached base in 43 straight games against the al east which is already complete gibberish yeah but what the reason i liked it is because that is the second longest in red sox history not even a record Uh (laughs) and this was another one that came with an immediate caveat it was actually was preceded with kind of an obscure note is how they (laughs) described it which Uh is which is what it is and it's not a fun fact it is kind of an obscure note and um broadcasts have 
room for obscure notes as well. Not, I don't think we need to, like, I'm not in any way saying that they, well, maybe I'm, I am, but uh, you say, you say things. I had to do a broadcast for the Stompers mm-hmm. and uh, I got to do a broadcast for the Stompers. It was tremendous, but you say anything you say, I was saying all the things that I roll my eyes when announcers say, yeah. uh, you know, like talking about uh, getting the runner over and talking about how this guy is done against this pitcher and everything. You just say it all. And, uh, <laughs> and as long as you don't, as long as I, and that's that's partly because the strain of the activity forces you to be worse than you would otherwise be. Uh-huh. So it's not necessarily good that you say all this non you know non important stuff. Uh, in a better world where you had you know maybe you'd have in a better world maybe you'd have you know you'd edit <laughs> the three hour game down to an hour and ten minutes and only save the good stuff uh, like a Christopher Guest movie. But mm-hmm. uh, as it is, uh, you have to say all this stuff because you're. You're, you're just you're trying real hard you're trying your best um yep. and as long as you're i think that it only tips over into uh into 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 badness if you're using it to insult people or to uh degrade people and uh, most broadcasters aren't right okay play index sure just uh two quick i have two quick play indexes in fact all right uh and neither one is a traditional play index they're both about uh, early trends in the season that you can watch for if you want to. Uh, the first one was noticed by Daniel Rathman, uh, BP editor and writer, and I apologize if he's planning on writing about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, all right, so Daniel noted that um, it seemed like a lot of players were getting caught stealing bases, and he wanted to know if that, uh, in fact, there was like a 40% caught stealing rate, which is way higher than we usually see in major league baseball these days what what are we at normally like 74 percent now or something like that yeah somewhere around there uh and so it's like 60 percent success rate and he wondered whether this was a um an early season sort of trend if it's often like this so i looked at um how many stolen bases and caught stealing in each of the past five years in team's first eight games which it, uh-huh. which counts which collects almost everything that we've had to date. There are a couple teams with nine. There are also some teams with seven. So of course this would be 240 games a year. For 2016, we only have 216 games. So we're a little lower. We're like uh, 10% actually lower uh, than the norm in terms of games played to date uh, under this search. So uh, in fact, Daniel is completely onto something. There have been 58 caught stealings this year, which is as many as there have been in any year over the past five years in the first 240 games played. And again, just a reminder, we have not reached 240 games played, so it should be less. But there are as many as there were in 2012 and way more than in the other three years. 58 caught stealings. Last year, there were 53. The year before, there were 40. Meanwhile, in all those years, 140 steals, 145 steals, 136 steals. This year, only 96 steals. So um, as I uh, as I put it to, to to Daniel, the norm through this point of the year last year was twenty nine percent caught stealing. It was forty percent. I think it might even be higher because as Daniel and I were talking about this, we watched three people get caught stealing yesterday. <laughs> so let me see. As of now, uh, the caught stealing rate uh, it's still it's about forty percent. Uh, so, uh, so that's something to watch. Lots of people getting caught stealing and fewer people running as well. 
but more, but not by much. More, lots and lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of caught stealings. Huh. All right. I Odd. can't immediately think of a reason why that would be, but nor can I. Interesting. I there isn't a good one. Mm-hmm. Uh, good explanation. Uh, the other thing, and it's way too early for a record watch, but um, I was noticing one other thing about Rich Hill's performance since he came back, um, and it's that he's been hitting a lot of batters. Now, if you go back to 19, whatever, 50 or 20 or 30 or whatever, that you can go back pretty far, the record for hit by pitches in a season in the non dead ball era uh, is 21. Uh, that was set in 1969, and it was not even really approached in any way for a long time. Like it took 25 years before anybody else got to even 19. And then in in the early 2000s, there was this boom in hit by pitches. And so in 2001, 3, and 4, 2001, 2003, and 2004, um, six people hit 20 batters in a season. That is six out of seven in history did it in a three-year, in a four-year period, which is notable. Uh It's pretty interesting. Uh, two, uh, Two other things that make this even more interesting. None of the six did it twice. So these are six different pitchers who are in the top seven all time for hit by pitches in a season in a, in a four year period. And two of them were named Zambrano. <laughs> uh-huh. Two of the six. Anyway, uh, Kerry Wood in 2003 matched Tom Murphy with 21 hit by pitches. That is the modern era record. 21 hit by pitches in a season. Again, it is way too early to say Rich Hill is going to challenge this, but Rich Hill does have that. You basically need two hit by pitches for every three starts in order to tie or break this record. Uh, and Rich Hill hit two batters in each of his first two games. Only, I believe, five pitchers in history have ever done that. Uh, and Hill, even before this, was a hit-by-pitch kind of guy. Uh, in his career, starting uh, going back to 2007, when he had his first full season, he has thrown 385 innings. He has hit 24 batters. Now, that's not a good enough pace to get there, uh, but uh, it is quite high. He uh, he did hit 12 in a season, and he also hit two uh, in his four amazing starts last year. Uh, so it seems like part of what has uh, brought Rich Hill this far has also uh, caused him to uh, to start hitting some more batters. Um, and you know he's got a good head start on this record. And uh, so you know four four and two starts. He needs two every three. Something to watch. Rich Hill record watch. All right. And you can check on that yourself by subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP to get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. All right, let's take one from Milosh, who says, after how many games into a new season should the Chiron start showing current year stats instead of previous year stats? If there were a way to display both, I would want to say both immediately. I mean, from the second game on, I'm Mm kind of curious about what the hitter has done thus far, even though it's not necessarily, you know, predictive or anything, but I always want to know last year and I would like to know, I mean, even a few games into the season, if a guy is, you know, over the season or something, I'm, I'm interested. Or if he's had a, an incredible Trevor story like start, then I want to know about that too. So I'd be interested in seeing both for a couple of weeks at least or something. And if both isn't an option and we just have to switch over at a certain point, then I guess I would say uh, 
I, I don't know, maybe I'd make it a, a plate appearance minimum more so than a, a day minimum. So yeah, definitely um, plate appearance minimum. Yeah. So I guess maybe like uh, 30. I also think that there's a difference between rate and counting stats. Counting stats don't mean much unless you have enough context to know how much they mean. And I don't think intuitively we know whether seven RBIs in the first 17 games is a lot or not. Uh Uh, And so I would, I think I would, if, if I don't know what, I forget what most TV broadcasts have right now, but I assume it's still something like batting average home runs, um, RBIs, and maybe they have something else on there now. Uh Uh, And so if, if we're limiting it to that, I would, Kind of probably, uh, yeah, I would probably want that more than new stats for quite a bit longer. But ideally, I think that I would be content to know what a guy's slash line is and how many plate appearances. I would want that from day two. And if if that's all I can have, I'll take that on day two. I think. Okay. However, if there's room for both, I would not start the full transition from last year to this year until game 15 or so. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right. So it's a tough. This is a, the sort of thing where I don't really know the answer in the abstract. I would need to watch it and see how it feels. So this yeah. might be mm-hmm. maybe I'll start watching with this in mind and see how I feel when Josh Fagley comes up today and I see his stats and I'll see if I feel like I I am happy with that offering or not. Mm-hmm. I also kind of don't care <laughs> anymore now that it's so easy to look up a player's stats for current season or past season on you know whatever other screen you are looking at or that you have within reach as you're watching the game in most cases. Sure, I, but... I don't need it. Yeah, but they're doing it, and the question is, what sure. is the best way to do it? Yeah. And so maybe that comes into play if you know that the person who actually wants better stats... Uh, can is probably looking for them anyway, and maybe I don't know. I'm not sure what those stats are doing. What is the point of those stats? Is it to tell you whether he's good or not, or is it to sort of just prime you for an event? Well, I mean, showing showing the previous year stats at all, the fact that they do that at all suggests to me that it is to show how good you are, because that's the only reason why you would want to know that, really. And showing the current year stats is sort of helpful for, a, I don't know, just like a storytelling narrative context, just to see how well a guy has been doing heading into this game, whether he's, you know, feeling bad about himself or feeling good about himself. So I think it's a, it's a combination of both. But when you show the previous year stats, I think you're essentially trying to telegraph how good this guy is. <laughs> yeah. Right. I'm sorry. My answer is unsatisfying. I need to think more <laughs> about it. Okay. All right, Miles says, Rob Manfred, excited by DeepMind's victory in Go, decides to introduce computers into baseball. He allows the Miami Marlins to employ a pitcher with a robotic right arm such that it is able to throw a pitch with excellent control to any location with great movement and a speed anywhere from 65 to 105 miles per hour. However, the robot requires manual adjustments that are only allowed after each batter has had his turn. As such, it throws to the same general location for every single pitch of a plate appearance. If the pitch is a 98-mile-per-hour heater up and in, but barely catching the strike zone, the batter knows that it will go to that same place for every pitch of the plate appearance. It might vary by a mile an hour or an inch of location or two. 
My question is, is this robot any good? It's probably a better pitcher stuff-wise than anyone who has ever lived, but the batter gains a huge advantage after the first pitch. It has the complete arsenal of pitches that have ever been thrown and can be trotted out every day, though it might go down for repairs. Is that enough? Well, not only does the batter gain an advantage after the first pitch, but the batter might know the outcome of the plate appearance after the first pitch. That's true, if, yeah. If it's a ball. You would always take the first pitch. You would always take the first pitch. You, Yeah, you would. Oh, without a doubt. Well, yes. well, well yeah, why wouldn't you? Yeah. Well, because if it's a 99-mile-an-hour fastball right down the middle and you sit on it, uh, you know you, will have, you have three chances to hit that pitch. And uh, it might not. True. You might, but you, you odds might are it won't chances. be that pitch. And if it's not, then you get two more chances to hit that to, pitch if it is that really pitch. To really sit on it, yeah to, yeah. to know for a fact it is coming. I don't yeah. know. I think it'd be a bad pitcher. I think so, too. It just yeah. depends. It, it, if it could throw 135, then it'd right. be a good, if it would be a good pitcher. Otherwise, it would be a bad pitcher. Yeah. If it I can think only that, throw yeah. pitches that have humanly been thrown, even if it's every conceivable type of pitch, Cause I the, think the yeah. thing is that off-speed pitches, like the really great secondary pitches, uh, aren't strikes. And uh-huh. uh, even if you had uh, Syndergaard's slider, might be the the test of this. If Syndergaard throws his, if you if you gave it Syndergaard's slider, but it had to be a strike for it to have any value, but yeah. it's right at the bottom of the zone, could you hit it, or is it conceivable that you could actually throw a secondary pitch that is basically you know forever unhittable? Yeah, I'd, in, I'd in the strike zone, that, I don't think you could. I think that if mm. if it were right at the bottom of the zone and away, it wouldn't matter if it was away because then you just crowd the plate, you know it was coming. But if it were right at the bottom of the zone, eh, you could convince me that was a hard pitch to hit. But mm-hmm. my guess is it wouldn't be a hard pitch to hit if you knew it was a slider. If you didn't even have to worry about identifying it, if you didn't have to worry about timing it, and if you could cheat on location, my guess is that's an easy pitch. Yeah, I think this pitcher is, is pretty terrible. I mean, you could never get anyone to chase. You'd always have to throw a pitch in the strike zone because if you threw a pitch outside the strike zone, then the batter would just take that first one and then continue taking them until he walked. So you could only throw pitches in places where batters can hit them and you lose all of the element of surprise and the element of deception from contrasting from one pitch of one speed and type to the next. So I think this pitch is pretty pretty terrible i think he's a very bad pitcher yeah all right and one last very quick one which might be just as easy to answer eric hartman says how good would a player have to be to win the rookie of the year award while maintaining rookie eligibility the following year leading to the possibility of winning the award twice so the greg jeffries question essentially could you be good enough to deserve or to win the rookie of the year award without exceeding 130 at bats or 50 innings pitched or 45 days on the active roster so jeffries greg jeffries finished sixth in 1988 and he hit 321 364 596 uh uh, with six homers and five steals in 120 at bats so basically a 30 30 pace and a thousand ops and he finished uh he finished tied for sixth but that's basically he got like it looks like he got either three third place votes or one second place vote. So it's uh-huh. not like there was some like massive movement to draft Greg Jeffries for rookie of the year. Yeah. Uh it you know, he got a guy, mm-hmm. maybe, put put it on the ballot. It, it depends a lot on your competition for uh-huh. the award. Uh if your competition was that year's Chris Sabo, 
who won it, uh-huh. I think that you wouldn't have to do as much as if your competition was 2012's Mike Trout, in which case probably 130 homers and 130 at-bats would do it. <laughs> probably. <laughs> that uh, would do it, yes. But it, let's say you have 129 at-bats in an average year for competition. I'd say if you hit 20 homers, then you'd you'd win a homer every six and a half at, played uh, at bats. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even if you played at a Mike Trout level for that period of time, you probably shouldn't win because you know, even if you're playing well, at a ten win pace, if you're playing at a ten win pace for like a fifth of a wins. season or something, yeah. there's going to be someone who deserves the award more, unless you get special credit just for you know having it concentrated in such a period, such a short period of time. Like, you know, maybe playing at a Mike Trout pace for a fifth of a season is more appealing than playing at a six win pace or something for a full season. I don't know. But I don't think you could do it unless you were incredibly clutch. Like every hit you had was like a game winner or put your team ahead or something. And, you know, your team qualified for the playoffs by one game or something. And you you came up and the team surged with you and w- looked like it was out of it. Or so. It would have to be some sort of really compelling narrative like that because it'd be almost impossible to statistically deserve the award. Well, the other thing is that it's they do it by at-bats instead of plate appearances. So if, if you were to draw an extra 40 walks, for instance, if you yeah. had a 25% walk rate, you could play you know almost a third of a season. Uh-huh. certainly a quarter of one. And if you were a 10-win player, now that's maybe your three-war player. And that's that's not a bad argument for a three-win player anyway, a two-and-a-half-win player anyway. That guy's already in the conversation. That uh-huh. many f- Worse players have definitely won in full two-and-a-half-win seasons. Uh, and so then, yeah, if you were... If you were destroying AAA before that, but you were held down for service time reasons and, you know, it gets in the conversation that, you know, yeah, well, why should he be penalized because his GM's a cheapskate, for instance, I think you'd win. I don't think you'd have to be that good. Just for fun, I pretended that Barry Bonds in 2001 came up as a rookie just to see what he could do in 130 or fewer at-bats. And I just picked May 1st randomly. And uh-huh. I went until I got to about 130 at-bats, all right? Yeah. He, he played 40 games, so it's a quarter of a season. He hit 382 with a 557 on, on base percentage and a 1,049 slugging percentage. He hit 25 <laughs> home runs. Now, this is Barry Bonds. This is not a normal human, but he actually is a human. I, yeah, most people don't know this, but he actually was born of woman uh, and has the same DNA that we all do and has you know proven that a human being can do this. Uh, you know so, why, right? I do know why. So, uh, so if somebody came up and did Barry Bonds for forty games, then that would do it. I, there's no doubt that that would win it, right? If you played forty games but hit twenty five homers with a sixteen oh six OPS, <laughs> yeah, that would do it. All right, so that's what that's the that's the that's that would do it. There's probably a line slightly worse than that. You could do it. I think if you hit eighteen home runs while keeping your rookie eligibility, you're good. I'm saying 18 home runs. I don't think that any other stat matters. Maybe if you hit like 480, but otherwise it's just going to come down to the home runs. Do you hit 18 home runs and keep your rookie eligibility? If you do, you get it. Uh All right. So that is it for today. You can support the podcast on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and becoming a patron. Five listeners who have already become patrons, Matthew Whitrock, Nick Wilwert, DJ Short, Jeremy Reynolds, and Brenda Block Young. Thank you. 
You can also buy our book, The Only Rule Is It Has to Work, which comes out on May 3rd. You can pre-order it now in hardcover or Kindle or Nook or audiobook at Amazon or Barnes & Noble or your local bookstore. It is, of course, the story of how Sam and I tried to impose our will on professional baseball players last summer for the Sonoma Stompers, an independent league team in California. You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash Effectively Wild and rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Keep the questions coming via email at podcastbaseballperspectus.com or via the Patreon messaging system. We will be back with another show tomorrow. Yeah.